Hi, this is Pastor Nelson Mercado. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast from the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope you are blessed by today's message. Salvation by grace alone. What comes to your mind when you hear this phrase, salvation by grace alone? I believe, friends, that this phrase has become sort of a cliché. Cliché that has become a way to identify us. Your bona fide evangelical credentials. Salvation by grace alone. In his book, The Cost of Cheap Grace, Bill Hall says that this phrase... Salvation by grace alone is meant to bolster a doctrine that emerged from the Reformation that salvation has nothing to do with behavior. You realize that there are Christians, and I've spoken to some, who proudly proclaim that they are no better behaved than people with no religion at all. If this gospel, friends, if the gospel message is that you are saved, that you're, if it's only the fact that you're saved, that your sins are forgiven, that, that you have your ticket punched to get to heaven, but that your morality, their behavior, and the collective contribution of the church to society, it, it doesn't do anything, then why would anybody be interested? Why would anybody care? Philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche over a hundred years ago, if you're familiar with him, you know he is a critic of Christianity. The Christians, he said, have never predict, uh, practiced the actions Jesus prescribed to them and the impudent, garrulous talk about the justification by faith and its supreme and sole significance is only the consequence of the church's lack of courage and will to profess the work. Of Jesus. Now, of course, we wouldn't subscribe to Friedrich Nietzsche. But notice what he's saying. What he's saying, in essence, is that justification by faith was an excuse made up by Christians so that they would justify not behaving like Jesus. What do we need, friends? Because, you know, the fact of the matter is that resonates today. This concept that many, that, uh, what, what people mean when they say justification by faith or salvation by faith alone. It resonates today. Friends, what I believe is sorely needed is, uh, is, is for us to return to imitate Christ. That we demand of ourselves and the church the works that Jesus did to save the world. What we do need, friends, is a correct understanding of what it means to be saved. What does salvation mean to you? What does this look like? You know, you hear it all the time. People will say, uh, if they're explaining to you that they went to church and accepted Jesus, says, I was saved last weekend. I was saved when I was seven years old. You know, people express it that way. But what does that mean, friends? What does that mean? When we talk about salvation, clearly we need to first set the foundation of what we are being saved from. Let us pray. Father, 
We, are, we have been blessed by your presence here this morning. Father, you have blessed us with the worship service, with the song, with the reminder that you are true, you are alive, and Jesus is coming. He is reigning. You gave Jesus for a purpose, a purpose to save us. And yet perhaps many of us still struggle, what does that really mean? Father, we pray that today and throughout this week, you will talk to us and, and clear this up because it is our desire not only to be sure of who we are, but assure, uh, assure of who you are and what does that mean in our life and in the life of the people around us that are watching. We pray for your spirit. Speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. When we speak of gospel truth, of the uh, theory of the logic of the gospel, it's my opinion that there's no greater book in Scripture than the book of Romans. And I believe that when we, when we fully understand the book of Romans, we will in essence be sure of what it means to be saved and how salvation is accomplished. It was the reformer John Wesley who, having struggled many years to be righteous, found himself in utter despair. However, one day in 1738, he went to the chapel in London where he had heard, heard someone reading Luther's preface to Romans. And this is what he wrote. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine. And save me from the law of sin and death. I hope that every one of us can feel like John Wesley. And if you haven't, if you don't, I hope that by the end of this week you will. Now, since we're going to spend some time in the book of Romans, it makes sense that we look a little bit about, talk a little bit about the background of the book, the context, what led Paul to write this book. Now, the Apostle Paul usually addressed people or, or congregations that he had established. This is the exception, the book of Romans. In fact, uh, uh, when he wrote this book, he had never visited Rome. He had never visited Rome. Now, after the Jews had been expelled from Rome by Emperor Claudius, after Claudius dies in, in AD 54, the Jews return to Rome. But by this time, the Gentiles ran the Roman congregations. And during this time, it was only natural for the Christian community to move away from their, from their Jewish origins to the non-Christian Jewish Christianity. But with the return of the Jews now to Rome and the, and, and the Gentiles running the churches, in essence, the natural thing was that friction developed between the Jews and between the Gentiles. And this is really the background against which Paul writes this letter to the church of Rome. Now, Paul had three purposes when he wrote this, church, this letter to the church of Rome. He had a, 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 a practical purpose, he had a strategic purpose, and he had a theological purpose. Now, practically, Paul had, had, um, was getting ready to evangelize, or so he had evangelized the Roman province and some of them, and he was getting ready to visit Spain. He makes that clear later on in chapter 16 that that was what he wanted to do. And so what he hoped for was that the Roman church would provide for him sort of a base of operations in much the same way that Antioch had provided the base of operations when he evangelized the east. 
That was his, his practical purpose. Now, strategically, if Rome, if the church of Rome was going to provide that base of operations, it was the Jews and the Gentiles that had to put it together. They had to work together to accomplish it. Remember, there's, there's friction between them. So now that is his strategy. I want them to work together. Theologically, his, uh, his theological purpose was that he felt the need to establish his theological credentials. And so he wrote a letter where he sets forth the logic of the gospel. He sets forth a complete exposition of the gospel that he had been preaching for the previous 20 years. Now you may wonder, okay, so what's the big guy? What, what's, what's, you know, what does that have to do with me today? Well, as we'll see, friends, the, the, the challenges that the church of Rome went through are some of the same challenges that you and I go through. And, and the church of Rome had a big problem among themselves, a problem that you and I share with them. The solution to the Roman dilemma is a solution to ours. Just like the solution was available to them, the solution is available to you and me. So let's get started. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. I, I, I will always be reading from the New King James Version. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. So notice right now, Paul obviously identifies he is a writer of this letter, and he calls himself a bondservant. Now what is a bondservant? It is not a word that we use in our time. But a bondservant was someone who probably owed money to somebody else and maybe didn't have a way of paying it, so they would hire themselves out and they would pay their debt with their service. That was a bondservant. Now, depending on which version, I think, believe the King James says the slave, but Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, when we think about slave, we know what that means, but we, we think of it in a negative way. We see slavery, we think about the history of slavery in the world, the history of slavery in our country. That's something negative. We don't want to have nothing to do with slavery. But friends, as we'll see this week, slavery to Jesus is how we truly become free. Amen. How we truly become free. He calls himself a slave of Christ. But notice, he also calls himself an apostle. Now, that is very important because, you see, an apostle was defined as somebody who had known Jesus personally and who had been witness of his resurrection. But that wasn't Paul. Remember, Paul's not among the twelve. Paul's not among the twelve. He, 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 you know that Paul was a persecutor of Christians. But you see, Paul considered himself an apostle. Why? Well, because one day he was on his way to Damascus to, to get Christians and, and bring them back to, to incarcerate them. And there Jesus appears to him in a glorious way and has a conversation with Paul. And see, Paul believes that now I am a witness of the resurrection of Jesus. He calls himself an apostle. Very important because he wants to establish why in the world you need to leave, even listen to anything I have to say. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he calls himself also separated to the gospel. Notice Jesus. Remember, Jesus, he separates Paul for a particular purpose, to be the apostle to the Gentiles, 
This, and this is important because, again, remember, there's Jews, there's Jewish Christians there now, and the same root word that Paul uses for separated is the same root for the word Pharisee, which he was also. So he wants to establish a connection with those who are listening to him, as any good speaker does. And then Paul goes on to explain himself in verse 8 through 15. He says that it was his intention uh, uh, to visit Rome, but it, it, it was just not possible. Things got in the way, and he wasn't able to visit with them. And then he moves on to presenting the gospel in a nutshell, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Notice, this is part of our, of our scripture reading. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Gentile or the Greek. For in it the righteousness of Christ, of God, is revealed from faith to faith, as, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, if Paul had a weak faith, after everything he had been through in the previous 20 years, you know, was persecuted, he, he was left for dead. If he had a, 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 faith, a faith that was weak, he certainly would have something to be ashamed of. But, but, but think about it. Paul was preaching a message that was not popular. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, he says that this gospel message, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. It wasn't a popular message, but Paul is saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And how is it with you today? How do you feel about the gospel message? Because you know, just like in the time of Paul, the message of the gospel is not a popular message. And things have changed dramatically. You know, it used to be maybe 20, 30 years ago that, that, that if you said you were a Christian, okay, fantastic. People admired you. Congratulations, you're a Christian. They may not have agreed with you, but at least they admired and respected you. That's not the case anymore. We live in a time that to say you're a Christian is to say that you're intolerant, that you're a racist, and that something's wrong with you. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Do people even know that you're a Christian? Let me take this one step further. Because among Christians, Seventh-day Adventists are often criticized the most. So maybe, maybe you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but, but when it comes to sharing what you truly believe, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, you keep yourself quiet. Why? Because you don't want people to ridicule you because, you know, they call you legalists or they call you part of a cult. How do you feel about the gospel? Can you say like Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God. The power of God. Power behind it. Notice, it is the power of God for the salvation of mankind. Salvation, friends, is for everyone, for every sin, at every time, and under every circumstance. And yet there is a limitation. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone. What? All who what? All who believe. That's the caveat right there. Now, this believing has much, is more than just us accepting certain facts and figures. It's more than just the right information. Friends, salvation is more than understanding that the Sabbath is the seventh day. 
Salvation, this concept of believing has to do with surrender, has to do with trust, has to do with a complete transformation of who you are. And as we'll see, my friends, this is what salvation, this is where salvation leads, a complete change in who you are. Salvation for all who believe. And again, this is an important, uh, because Paul is establishing a foundation that he's going to build upon. Because the, prob- uh, the Romans had a, had a big problem. A problem that you and I share with them, and that's the problem of sin. So notice he goes on in verses 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in righteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. It's important that we understand. Remember now, Paul is, is speaking to a, a, a church that is composed of both Jews and Gentiles. And so he starts his conversation by speaking to the Gentiles. Paul is saying that sin and its results are the one thing, the only thing that arouses God's wrath. And that wrath is a holy reaction to the woe, to the misery, to the desperation, to the the pain and the suffering that sin causes. But you may wonder, well, why should God be mad at us? Why should God's wrath be shown? Well, Paul says in verse 20, because they are without excuse. Now, who is without excuse? He's talking to the Gentiles here. And in essence, he's saying they're without excuse because God has shown himself to them. God has revealed himself to them. He's made himself manifest. He has shown himself to them through the, you know, through the creation. He, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, he says. Do you realize that there are you know, places in this world that, that, um, that, that have never heard of Jesus Christ, that they don't have a Bible? There's remote places in the world that the gospel hasn't reached yet. And yet, somehow... God reveals himself to people. That's what he's saying here. He's talking to the Gentiles, and he's saying, listen, you are without excuse. Why? Because God has shown himself to you. You know, I remember, um, you know, it's been many years already. uh, When Lucy and I got married, it was uh, February 11th, uh, 2000. (laughs) I got that wrong. I'm going to be in trouble today. 1990. That was many moons ago. Yeah, it did. It went like this. Come on. Time flies when you're having fun, Nathan. It's my story, and I'm sticking to it. But I digress. So we didn't have a honeymoon because, you know, we were young kids. We were broke. We were broke. And so uh, it was a Sunday, February 11th, we moved to, uh, you know, Philadelphia the next day, and, you know, we were just going to start our life. And so we didn't have a honeymoon until about three years later, and, and, and it was made possible because Lucy got some kind of a bonus at work, and so we used that bonus to go on our honeymoon. Three years later, we went to the Poconos, and we had a great time. And so, you know, doing the touristic things, we went to this, uh, it was a gift shop. I, I have been reminded, Mary, that it was a gift shop. I thought it was some kind of an Indian reservation, but again, it was, many, it was a long time ago. 
so it was a gift shop, and so in this gift shop, we're looking at things, and, and we pick up this thing, this artifact. We can't remember what it even looks like, uh, but we were wondering what it meant, and, and, and so the, uh, the person, I, th I thought it was a man, but I'm told that it was a lady, Mary. Anyway, the person, uh, the person that, that was, um, you know, looked at us and, and explained to us what the artifact was. Well, as it turns out, this was an Indian artifact, and this artifact basically was a representation of how the Indians saw God. And how, how the, the way the lady explained it is basically the Indians saw God as we see God, three divine persons in one. So, you know, obviously, you know, they wouldn't call it the Trinity, but they believe in, in the version that, that, like we do, the Trinity. They don't have a Bible. They didn't have a Bible. They didn't have anybody there talking to them about it. But God himself had revealed himself to them some way. And so this is what Paul is saying. That's why they are without excuse. They are still responsible even though they were in relative ignorance. So again, he says there at the end of verse 18, so they are without excuse. He continues saying uh, in verses 21 through 23, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. You see, friends, rejecting God darkens the hearts of people, and they become fools even though they proclaim their wisdom. This was obviously, you know, when you think about the Gentile, the Greeks, uh, the Greek philosophy that Paul talks about in, in his writings, that that's what they proclaim now, the wisdom. But they're fools. And friends, history repeats itself. History repeats itself because today we live in a time when, when reject, people rejecting Christianity, oh, these are the smart ones. We see it on TV now. It's become so popular, right? Hollywood talking about really what's good for the world. Oh, we're the smart ones. Those Christians are, there's something wrong with them. They, they, they proclaim their wisdom, but they're fools. They're fools. We have, uh, we, what we see today is a series of philosophical speculations that have led many into darkness and confusion. And, and this foolishness, as Paul talks about, leads to idolatry. This is what he says in verse 23. That's what they did to them. Now, of course, we would say today, well, you know, that was those people. They were ignorant. You know, we, we are much smart today. We don't bow down to these images. We don't, we, we, we're not idolaters. Or are we? You know, when you think about idolatry, it means that, that, um, that you are uh, uh, um, God becomes something else, Right? Right? You're placing your trust in something else. Something else or somebody else takes the place of God in your life. So what do you trust? Who do you trust? Could it be in your, in your wits, in your resources, in the money that you're making? Anything that gets in the way of what God should be in our life becomes our idol. And in essence, that, that darkness and confusion leads to idolatry. That can happen to us too, friends. That can happen to us too. And of course, rejecting God, notice, rejecting God causes God to give them up to their sinful desires. Notice verses 24 through 27. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. 
who exchange the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forevermore. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even the women exchange the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise, also men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burn in their lusts for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves a penalty of their error which was due. Friends, you don't have to be a theologian to understand what Paul is talking about here. Hmm? So, so, so they reject God, at least into darkness and confusion, all forms of idolatry. And you know, God doesn't force himself upon anybody, so, so God gives you what you want. Gave them up to the, the, the sinful desires of their heart. Now, of course, Paul doesn't go into all the details of all kinds of sinful desires. But I wonder why he thought it was important to mention this particular one. Let's be clear here. Paul is talking about homosexuality here. There is no clear, it can't be any clearer than that. So clearly this was an issue, a problem in his day. Part of what he says, God gave him up to the, the, the lustful, you know, their desires. I tell you about history repeats itself now, doesn't it? Now, of course, you know, I don't want to, you know, just pick on a particular group of people or a particular sin, the sin of homosexuality, because unfortunately we see all kinds of sin out there that even people, church-going folk, maybe say even they're normal, pride, and who knows, I mean, there's so many others. But the point is here, Paul makes this clear, and, and we see that clearly today. We live in a time where so much has changed. If you've been in the world for, for you know, more than 20 years, You've seen how the world changed, has changed, how what, what, what the Bible defines is wrong. It's clearly the Bible says it's wrong. It's been redefined. Sin has been redefined. And this is a particular case in the case of, of homosexuality, where now if, I mean, every, anything and everything goes. And if you disagree with it, the, wrong, the, the, pro, the person who has the problem is you. The Bible was antiquated. Throw that away because now this is the way that things work and, and you better shape up and get along with it. Well, otherwise, otherwise we're going to do something about it. Friends, God has given the world up to their sinful desires, their lustful desires because they have rejected God. One unknown writer um, said it this way. Because of sin, man has taken the deity out of religion the supernatural out of Christianity, the authority from the Bible, God out of education, morality and virtue out of literature, beauty and truth out of art, ethics out of business, and fidelity out of marriage. You know, much has been said in the last couple of weeks about the famous slap, right? Hmm. You know, I always felt connection with Will Smith because he's from Philly, just like I am from Philly. But, but, but you've heard the, the whole the polemic between, you know, him and, and his wife, right? Oh, you know, they have a, a what is it, an open marriage? Because anything goes these days. But this is exactly what sin has caused. This is what, what sin has caused. See, God allows people allows us to make our choices, even when our choices are wrong. Because for God, free will is very important. And so what Paul is saying here is that God, in essence, doesn't 
always rescue us from our wrong choices, with few exceptions. For example, you have the, the drug addict who uses dirty needles and, and injects himself and shares the needles. Well, that, that, that person gets you know, HIV AIDS, right? But that person repents and, 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 and turns to God and surrender. And the Bible says that, that that person is forgiven and that person is saved, praise God. But they may still have to deal with the consequences of AIDS and, you know, and may even die from it. You see? And God doesn't do this because he hates sinners. He does this because he, he wants the sinners to waken of their need of him, the salvation that he has to offer. So Paul is talking to the Gentiles. He's still talking to the Gentiles. I tell you, those Gentiles, ugh, they're guilty of every kind of vice out there. They really have a problem there. It's easy for us to point our fingers at them. Those that are not here in the four walls, oh, yeah, I tell you, this world, there are a bunch of sinners out there, Mary. Shame on them. I'm, uh, <laughs> well, I'm glad Paul is, Paul is not finished yet. Because <laughs> now you're going to talk about us. Amen. Chapter 2, verses, uh, um, starting in verse 1, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to the truth, to truth against those who practice such things. Verse 3, and do you think, O oh man, you who judge those who are practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. So notice there is a major shift here. Paul just finished speaking to the adulterers and, and, the, and those that are... Uh, are practicing pornography and all kinds of vice, and now he turns toward those who thought they were better than the others because, you know, after all, we are God's people. Huh? And they were practicing the same things. They thought they were morally superior. So obviously now Paul shifts his, his audience and he's speaking to the Jews, speaking to the Jewish Christians. And yet he speaks to you, to us as well this morning. He speaks to us because, again, maybe we think we're better because we go to church. Or we call, because we go to church on the right day there, Earl. But it's time for us who are sitting in the pews, wake up and realize what Paul is saying here. The message is clear. All human beings are sinners. We all have a common problem. That is a, that's the title of our message. A common problem. The Jews, of course, rejected this message. They thought, well, you know, we're, you know, we're the, 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 the people of God. And so they didn't think that they would be subject to the judgment that Paul speaks of here in verse 2. But clearly Paul says, you know, you are not going to escape this judgment. No one will escape the judgment no matter how many times you go to church or how vegetarian your sins may be. Nobody's going to escape the judgment. And, you know, God is good. Isn't God good? We celebrate that God is good. Here in the South, we say God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Praise God for his goodness. But somebody, people, some, some, sometimes people like to take advantage of the goodness. 
But goodness, God is gracious, but it doesn't mean we can go on sinning like as nothing is happening. Because the goodness of God does not lead us to abuse him, or at least it shouldn't lead us to abuse him. Right? What does uh, Paul say? The goodness of God leads to what? To repentance. And repentance is a complete change of who you are. It's a complete turnaround. That's what repentance is. That's part of the salvation experience. It was William Barclay, author William Barclay, that said that the mercy of God, the love of God, is not meant to make us feel that we can sin and get away with it. It is meant to break our hearts in love. And so on account of this reality that we're all sinners, everyone will be judged. He says in verses 5 and 6, still in chapter 2, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each according to his deeds. Now somebody may have a problem with this. Maybe they say there's contradiction here because it seems that Paul says in chapter 1 that, that, that salvation is you know, by grace through faith. It has nothing to do with our works. But here he says that we'll be judged by our works. How, you know, how, how do you coincide that? How do you reconcile that? Well, there's no contradiction there. The Bible says clearly, and we're going to see that more clearly tomorrow, that we are justified by grace through faith in Jesus. We're going to look at what that means tomorrow. But while we are justified, while we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we will be judged by our works. Make no mistake about it. Because you see, the presence or absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works in our lives. In other words, the works are the evidence of your faith. And again, Paul is speaking to the, Jew, to the Jews now. He's talking about that judgment. But, but, but let us not think that the Gentiles are, are, are excused from that judgment. Notice verses 12 through 16. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. So now he, he's, he's, he's talking to the Gentiles, specifically those that don't have the law, right? And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Who is he talking there? He's talking to the Jews, right? And then I, he, he takes a parenthesis here. And this parenthesis is very important. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but who? The but the doers of the law will be justified. And again, we'll talk about justification tomorrow. But I find that very important and interesting because, you know, as I told you before, I talk to a lot of people you know, whether they respond to a, a, a Facebook ad or something that we put up, and, um, and, and some people have a problem. Oh, you know, the law is done away with. We don't have to do that anymore. But notice, it's not those who hear the law, it's those who do it. Those who practice it. You know? For, the, for when Gentiles, verse 14, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things of the law, these although not having the law are law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing them or excusing them. You know, God, remember, God has revealed himself to them, and so God will judge them according to what they know. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to the gospel. So again, my friends, God holds us accountable for the light that we have received. And again, this is important because in the context of what Paul is trying to say here, the church of Rome was composed of both Jews and Gentiles who were constantly disputing among themselves. 
There was this constant, um, I am better than you attitude. Or maybe I'm not as bad as some people attitude. Maybe you know people like that. Dare I say, and maybe you've been in churches like that. Huh? But notice, Paul addresses this very thing in chapter 3. As he, be, as he begins chapter 3, and notice verses 3, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. Notice the penetrating questions of Paul. What then, he says. <laughs> Are we better than they? So, so here, you know, if we apply ourselves, if we put ourselves in this situation... You know, he goes from Gentiles to Jews. The Gentiles would be a symbol of those who are not in our church, or all those in the world, in the secular world. The Jews would represent us, though, as the church-going folk. And we, of course, you know, have the habit of judging even more harshly those that are outside. You know, how dare they do those things? And so and Paul says, what they are, we better than they? Not at all. Why aren't we better than they? For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does any good, no, not one. Hmm. I wonder if you, if you feel any depressed yet. No, not one. Now, you know, Paul is, is, is talking to the church of Rome, but he's talking to you and me today as well. Not one of us, notice what he says, not one of us here in this place does any good. Hmm? I only had so many men because, of course, nobody wants to hear that. Of course, we know, we, 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 we know good people, at least people that we define as good. We know people that do good things. Maybe, maybe we do good things. You know, good things for the church, good things for others. And yet I'm reminded of the words of the prophet Isaiah. You're familiar with Isaiah 64, 6. But we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousness are like what? Filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. We all fall short. Fall short. I don't, I've, I've never been to California. There's a, a beach, a, a pier in California, the Huntington Beach Pier. I don't know if any of you have been to California. Huntington Beach, California. Um, this is um, a, a, a pier uh, that it's located at the end of Main Street, where the street continues past the Pacific Coast Highway onto the beach and becomes a pier. It's 1,850 feet in length. It's one of the, the, the longest piers in the West Coast. So now let's say that you take, you get 20 of the best broad or long-distance jumpers onto that pier. You line them up, and you instruct them to jump as far as they can into the water. So sure, you may get somebody there or some to jump 25 feet into the water. Yeah. Maybe you would, um, you would have somebody jump near the record and jump 27 feet into the water. Perhaps someone would even break the record and jump 29 or 30 feet in the water. But now, not one of them could jump to Catalina Island. Why? Because Catalina Island is located 26 miles away. Huh? They'll fall short. And this is what, look, listen to how Paul says this. 
later in verse 23, chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and come short or fall short of the glory of God. Everyone has fallen short. All have missed the mark, all have tried, but not one of them can, can, can come close to the spiritual Catalina Island. They all jump, they all try all sorts of things, but by birth, by choice, by nature, by action, man consistently misses the mark, no matter how good their intentions may be. Do you feel down yet? Maybe hope has left you for good. Well, Paul's extensive uh, uh, treatment of universal sin and condemnation has paved the way for him to start discussing God's great plan of salvation. And just as he had repeatedly stressed out the fact that, that both Jew and Gentile are sinners, that both Catholics and Protestants are sinners, that both church-going folk and, outs- and per- church, uh, people outside the church are sinners, so he will make it clear that God's salvation is also available to everyone. To everyone. We have a common problem, friends. All of us. Just like the Roman church, you and I, we have a common problem. That common problem is sin in our lives. And none of us is excused. But God has also a common solution. Do you want to know what the solution is? You've got to be here tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, Mary, to, be, to see what the common solution is. And so I hope that all of you can come and are here because, you know, if it ends here, if you go home and you don't hear anything else, boy, I'll tell you, Pastor, Pastor really brought it down to me. I don't want to go to that church anymore because it's all about me and me and being bad. Yes, we are bad, but God still loves us. He's provided a way. I, there I say, we all have a cancer that we're dying with, and God has provided a vaccine. The common solution, tomorrow at 7 o'clock, come and join us for that. You know, I'm thankful that in spite of the fact that, that we're sinners, and that is our reality, we can hide behind our Lord. Thanks for joining us. If you're ever in the Nashville area, come and visit us at the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're located at 2800 Blair Boulevard in Nashville, Tennessee. You may also visit us at nfsda.org.